we've had some epic episodes in this podcast as we walk through Dante's comedy, long, difficult passages with some crazy references to Thebes and Troy, wild notions that may dominate the entire comedy like Contrapasso. So I thought we'd have a short episode. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. If you remember where we are, we are down in the last of the pits of fraud. We're in Canto 30 of Inferno. We have just been speaking with two alchemists who have been propped up against each other like pans in this medieval hospital of contagion horrors. One of them has been attacked by a rabid soul and dragged off, a soul that is like a rabid pig with tusks who sank them into the alchemist's neck and dragged his belly, scraped his belly along the hard bottom of the ditch. This is a short passage, lines 34 through 45, that simply explains further who these two souls are. Let's start with the pilgrim's response to the violence. Oh, I said to him, and so the other may not sink his teeth into you? Grant me the favor of telling me who that one is before it hurries off. And he to me, That's the old soul of the debased Mira, who became her father's lover well beyond the bounds of proper love. That one came into sin with him by falsifying herself into the shape of another, just like that other one venturing off over there, who, to win the queen of the herd, falsified himself as Buoso Donati to make a last will and testament that was perfectly legal. Short passage. Basically, the identification of these two rabid souls, Mira, and then, we've already been told, this other soul is Gianni Skiki. Here's what I'd like to do in the podcast. First of all, I want to just identify both of these souls, Mira and speak more about Gianni Skiki. I talked a little bit about him in the last episode. I'd like to pose two structural questions about even this little passage and what came before it, and then two larger theoretical questions that I don't have an answer to, but that can open up some discursive and interpretive space in all of our minds. So let's get started with these two rabid souls. The first one we hear about is Mira, and this soul who is left there, we think Griffolino. You remember, surely, all my problems with all of that. And let me just stop before we get to Mira and say more about my problems of all that. I don't actually have a problem with the early commentators naming this fellow Griffolino, although some of the earliest commentators are a little bit in the dark on it. I do believe that they are making up details that make it fit comedy. What I have trouble with is that over 700 years of commentary, these early commentators' notions of who these people are have become set. And so if you read the notes of various translations for Dante's comedy, you'll see the annotator saying things like, this is Griffolino. That's my problem is the is. I think you should say this could be 
or this maybe, or commentary tradition has identified this as. It's that these suppositions, many of them which include clearly made-up details specifically to fit the location in comedy, they have become truth claims in the commentary, and now they sit as facts behind the poem. I just would like the poem to be a little murkier. But when it comes to Mira, it doesn't need to be murky. (laughs) Wasn't that a nice transition? Mira is pretty clear who this is. Mira's story is told in, again, Ovid's Metamorphoses. We're back to that. If you remember in the last episode of the podcast, we had two big passages from Ovid. We're still in the Metamorphoses. This is book 10. The story is a long one in Ovid from line 298 to 5.8. 18 in The Metamorphoses, long, big, complicated story about Mira. Here's basically the the gist of it. Mira is the daughter of the king of Cyprus. She falls in love with her father, in sexual love with her father. Her father tries to find her a suitor. She doesn't like any of the suitors he picks out for her. When he asks her what's wrong, why does she keep crying every time he picks out a suitor? She says, because none of them is like you. She means that incestuously. He takes that as a compliment. His wife goes away in a religious ceremony for the women of Cyprus. As his wife is away, this person, Mira's nurse, who knows of her incestuous desires, basically tells the king, her father, hey, I got a young girl who's got the hots for you. Your wife's away. Now's the time. He says, what's this girl look like? The nurse says, well, she looks like Mira. Sure enough, Mira comes in dressed as just an ordinary girl from town, as it were, and she ends up sleeping with her father. The incestuous relationship here ultimately drives her rather nuts. She's driven out into the desert. There she gives birth to the child that is the product of her sleeping with her own father. And by the way, I should say in Ovid, she apparently repeatedly does it. It's not just a one-night stand. The child that is born is Adonis, the famed male beauty Adonis, and she herself is turned into a myrrh tree, you know, frankincense, myrrh gold that is brought to the infant Jesus by the wise men, this Middle Eastern spice. She is turned into a myrrh tree to represent her weeping and sorrow, particularly because myrrh was often used as an herb for the dead. Okay, that's who that Mira is inside this story. And she's still standing there, rabid pig that she is. She has not carried off someone the way Gianni Skiki has. That's the other soul mentioned here. We talked about Skiki just briefly in the last episode of this podcast, but let's just fill it in. Gianni Skiki was, as I told you, a member of the Cavalcanti family, but more so than that, he was connected to the Donatis. This is important because Dante's wife is a Donati. 
Gemma Donati, and various Donatis will ultimately show up in comedy. In fact, there is a large bit devoted in Purgatorio to Forese Donati, a member of this family. In this case, we're not talking about Dante's wife or Forese. Instead, we're talking about Buoso Donati, who was the paterfamilias, the head of the family itself. Apparently, Buoso Donati died. His son, Simone, was upset at this because his father had not drafted a will to his son's satisfaction. So his son talked Gianni Schicchi into impersonating his father. They got the corpse out of the bed. They put, according to the early commentators, Gianni Schicchi in the bed, dressed as Buoso Donati. Gianni Schicchi apparently was a known impersonator. He could do Buoso Donati's voice. They call in a legal scribe, and Gianni Schicchi, pretending to be Buoso Donati, dictates a will. There is a funny bit in this story in the commentary. It gets picked up in Puccini's opera that is based on all of this. And that is, of course, as you know, Gianni Schicchi, as he's pretending to be Buoso Donati, dying in the bed, reading out his last will and testament, ends up giving himself. A large load of money out of the Donati family. Well, you know, if you're going to impersonate a guy and and pretend to be the guy that writes his last will and testament, you might as well make a bequest to yourself, which he does. And apparently, according to the old stories, Simone keeps saying, oh, no, 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 Gianni's Kiki doesn't need that much money. You know, clearly my dad is crazy. (laughs) And yet it stands in the will. And most importantly, apparently, or the joke is most importantly, Gianni Schicchi wills himself as Buoso Donati, the best mule in the herd. Apparently Donati had a bunch of really valuable mules, including the best mule. I don't know who judges these things. (laughs) The Mule Judging Society, apartment 3G. Um, The Mule Judging Society (laughs) judged one of Donati's mules, the best mule in Tuscany, and Schicchi willed himself this mule, and thus the line here, who to win the queen of the herd, the best mule of the herd, falsified himself as Buoso Donati. This involves a lot of back knowledge, and it seems as if these souls are speaking here as if we know the story. We might know the story I just told you from the early commentators, but again, there are reasons to distrust the details of these stories because they are being written down in these commentaries 50, 60 years after the death of these figures. There is, without a doubt, a Gianni Schicchi running around Tuscany in the 1200s, the late 1200s. There is, without a doubt, the reputation that he is a great impersonator. And then there are stories that form around him. But for the sake of argument here, let's just assume that that's part of what's going on. And especially because of that phrase, to win the queen of the herd. It's so elliptical. It seems as if this is a story that's being told that anybody who lived in that area would know essentially the details of what's going on here. Although we, 700 years later, have to fill it all in. All right, let's talk about a couple structural and interesting interpretive points about this passage. 
First of all, there is a great deal of twinning going on in this last pit of the falsifiers. There were the two sinners propped against each other like pans, Capocchio and, we assume, Griffolino. We had those two. Now we've got two more, Mira and Gianni Schicchi. It is a lot of twinning going on in the pit of the falsifiers. And it doesn't take us very long to push that out into falsifiers and twinning in the ways that falsification is an attempt to twin something, to make a double of something, to make two parts or make a second part that is very much like the original or even better than the original in the case of alchemy with lead and gold. It doesn't take us very far to see why this pit is so interested in twinned figures. It's all part of the Hall of Mirrors that is this last evil pouch of fraud. I think even going back to that reference last time to the two cities, Thebes and Troy, again, twinned references to fallen cities. I think all of this is leading us to the bit that fraud at its core is an attempt to mirror something, to offer a mirror response, a like-minded response that is nonetheless a distortion. Think back to simony and the selling of church offices. Allegedly, I grant you a church office because of your holiness or your good deeds. But in a weird, fraudulent twinning, I'm asking you essentially to pay me for that church office. It's not exactly mirroring. It's more house of mirrors. How's that? Or even funhouse of distorted mirrors. And we see that here because we have a classical figure, Mira, and then a contemporary figure, Gianni Schicchi. And they can't be perfect mirrors of each other, but they can twin. A second point about this passage is, again, the rabid nature of these two souls. And there is probably running behind this bit something from the Gospels. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. It's in chapter 8, verse 28 through 34. And there, Jesus is walking along, as he often does, and he comes across a man who is possessed by a legion of demons— Jesus decides to cast out these demons. The demons uh, say, oh, please don't just cast us out into the void, into nothingness, into emptiness. Instead, oh, look, over there, there's a herd of pigs. Cast us into that herd of pigs. Jesus does. And the pigs run off the edge of the cliff and kill themselves in the sea. We've had a lot of water imagery here. It would be operating in way the background from that gospel story. And also the possessed pigs, the rabid souls here who are like pigs. It's probably all running as a thematic underneath this. It would be much more apparent to a medieval audience, less apparent probably to us today. But we should know that this is running under here because, and here's the big reason for this, for bringing up such esoteric things as a gospel story, there are further gospel stories that are going to come up in Canto 30. It's part of a larger rubric that we begin with classical stories, Thebes and Troy, and then we move into 
gospel stories. We're going to move into several of them here in this pit. And from those gospel stories, we move to contemporary figures like Gianni Schicchi. Or how shall I put it? There's probably a way in which we've got classical sources, biblical sources, and contemporary figures, and they keep alternating back and forth among them in a pit of falsification. Interesting, right? Is there a way that making classical sources, the Gospels, and contemporary figures mm, parallel, three, three parallels? Sure, okay, parallel, is there a way that's playing fast and loose with the nature of falsification? Does drawing a parallel between the gospel and classical authors or between classical authors and contemporary figures, does that force us into a hall of mirrors and even a hall of distorted mirrors? That question is speculative, but it leads us out to other speculative questions. Here we've got Mira, one of the few women in hell. You realize how few women there are in hell? Let me just list them off for you. Up in the circle of lust, way up there at the top after we came out of limbo, we saw some women out on the wind, Semiramis, Dido, Cleopatra, and Helen. And then we heard from Francesca. That's the most number of women in any canto in Inferno. And there they are all up there in lust. We came down and saw the Furies, who are indeed female, call for Medusa, who is indeed a female, but those aren't humans. Those are instead classical figures. So, so far, we've got Francesca as our big human woman, and then we've got some other figures, Semiramis, Dido, Cleopatra, and Helen, all of whom are classical figures, classical women, floating out on the winds of lust. We have to get all the way down to Canto 18 to Titus before we hit yet another woman, this time a prostitute who is actually not condemned for her prostitution, but for her flattery. She's sitting there in the human excrement of the pit of the flatterers in fraud, if you recall. And then we've got to get to Canto 20, and we come across Manto, and the fortune tellers, and there are some other women circling around Manto. Manto is the main figure there as the fortune teller who founds Mantua and, if you remember, corrects <laughs> the Aeneid, or Virgil corrects the Aeneid by telling the real story of Manto as opposed to the fake story that's in Virgil's own epic, the Aeneid. Remember that? Boy, we went all over the place with that. And now here we have Mira, and in fact, there's one more woman yet to come in this pit. But if you really think about it, how few women there are in hell? Let's let's discount all those classical figures, Semiramis and all of them, because we don't actually hear from them. And let's discount Medusa and the Furies, because again, classical figures, and although we hear from the Furies, they're not necessarily the damned in the way that the humans are. The human women are Francesca, Tias, Manto, Mira, and we're assuming Mira is going to be taken as a human woman, even though she's from a classical source, and then one more in this pit. It's so few. Why is hell such a masculine 
place? And this is the speculative question to which I have no answer. I'm going to give you some options and you might be able to come up with more. Maybe hell is a masculine place because Dante defines sin as an act of the will not an act of nature. This will become more apparent in Purgatorio, but we've already had hints of this, that sin, the reason you displease God, is through a defect in your will or the choices that you make. And it may be that Dante, as would be typical of medieval men, can't understand that a woman might have a free will in and of herself. I realize that's a little bit of a misogynist clue there or a misogynist lead to an interpretation, but it's certainly within the medieval tradition to think that women are lacking in a full free will. Just think about the fall and the way they think about the fall. Eve is seduced into eating the apple, but every medieval would tell you that Adam ate the apple because he chose to. He wasn't seduced to do it. Instead, when Eve brought it to him, listen, you could just say as well, you know, uh, here comes naked Eve and she's holding an apple and saying, eat this. And so Adam goes, okay. But no medieval thinks that. Instead, they all think that Adam chose to eat as opposed to Eve who was duped into eating. See that funky nature of the will in women in a medieval context. Or here's another speculative answer. Maybe it's the gravity of Beatrice. Dante is after all very much in love with Beatrice. Maybe the sheer gravity of his sexual attraction to Beatrice and his deep and abundant abiding loyalty to Beatrice, maybe that causes hell to become a rather masculine place. In other words, such a sexual attraction to this one woman that he finds it hard to put a lot of women in hell, maybe. Or here's another idea. Much of early Dante's poetry is love poetry, love poetry about the heteronormative love of Dante for other women or male figures for female figures. Perhaps Dante's early poetry would lead us to think that women are put on a certain kind of pedestal, which they were increasingly in chivalric values and in the romance tradition developing around Dante and in the troubadour tradition developing around Dante. And so that early notion of august and lifted up love object causes the poet to have a bit of a male perspective on a place of evil. These are all speculative answers. I don't have a final answer here in any way. I can just tell you it's interesting that there are so few women in hell when in so many medieval manuscripts about evil, women are defined as the heart of evil, not in Dante. Here's a second speculative question. Why is impersonation such a horrible sin? <laughs> I mean, here we've had two figures, Mira, who in impersonates a young girl in order to sleep with her father, and then Gianni Schicchi, who is in 
impersonated the dead, Buoso Donati, pretending to be the living Buoso Donati, so he can dictate a will to Donati's son's benefit. Why is impersonation such a bad sin that it's so far down here? Well, think about this for a second. Here's a speculative answer. This is the growing age of individualism, or shall we say it's the birthing age of modern Western concepts of individualism. And we have a rising merchant and banking class. We don't have a middle class the way we now do, but we do have a rising merchant class. And there are merchants and bankers who can buy and sell even the landed gentry. There is a changing notion of social norms and a changing notion of identity not founded just on noble titles and an increasing mobility based on, oh, I don't know, importing wine or importing furniture or importing spices or exporting wine. There is a growing class of people who are mobile in terms of their economic basis in society. And perhaps that's why impersonation is down here. There's a discontent. The old way in which uh, you're set based on your birth, you're set by the land, you're set by the Lord, you're set in the fiefdom, you're set in the serf values, <laughs> you're completely feudally based. That feudal system is passing away in Dante's day. Maybe that is why this notion of impersonating others is so bad. It brings up a fear of the change of society itself. You know, there's one more function here that is speculative but interesting. Authors set characters in modern narratives, and Dante's comedy is a modern narrative, and a fluid self is dangerous to the growing notion of what a narrative is in Dante's day all the way up to our day. Characters are set in their motivations, in their speech patterns, in their behaviors. This is how we developed narrative in the West. It develops in the Romance tradition with the Arthurian legends. It's developing here in comedy. We see characters set. Ferranata, Ulysses, Guido de Montefeltro. We see these characters set in their identities and well-developed. A fluid notion of the self, a self that can impersonate other selves or not be its own self, well, that not only brings up social discomfort at the rising merchant class and increasing mobility, that may also bring up artistic discomfort. After all, I'm working really hard to make my characters sure and certain. How dare any of them breach the notion that identity could be impersonated or swapped or changed or mirrored or funhouse mirrored? That strikes to the nature of narrative art. Well, I made a lot out of that short passage, didn't I? You know, I could do it. <laughs> It's in my nature to make a lot out of these passages. So 
there you go. I did make a lot out of a really short 12-line bit. The next episode of this podcast will be much longer, add much more detailed. Again, it's hard to break up the 10th pit of fraud because the characters have such long speeches and long explications. So next time, not so short. But to get there, you got to subscribe. I ask you, thank you already in advance for rating the podcast. As I've said a million times, I am completely unsupported. If you give me a rating, I would really appreciate it. It very much helps me continue on doing what I'm doing simply because it lets me know that what I'm doing is landing with people listening to what I'm doing. And shall I say, I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you for being on this journey with me. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I will see you next time with even more strange stuff from the falsifiers. Falsifiers.